0: This is Rolling Rocks Radio with Jerry Armantrout, Cody Carter, and Scott Barker. What's going on, Rolling Rocks fam? So, we're going to do a little something different tonight. Due to circumstances beyond our control, Brother Jerry and Brother Cody and I were not able to get together this week. So, we're going to put our normal podcast on hold for right now and do something a little different rather than doing a single and sober or a sipping separately show what i've asked the guys to do is to find a passage from a book or a poem or something that they found interesting and inspiring and do a reading for us and this concept is lifted shamelessly from joe at the scholars and iron podcast um, if you guys are not following joe On Instagram and listening to his podcast, you ought to check it out. It's really awesome. Um, He's a documentarian of strength culture, and I'm hoping to have him on Rolling Rocks Radio here uh, in the very near future. Um, So I'm going to do a reading. Cody's going to do a reading. Jerry's going to do a reading. And that'll be the show for this week. So I have decided to read Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged. This is the the famous money speech from Francisco de Um And the reason that I decided to read this one tonight is it is, um, Atlas Shrugged was a fundamental book in helping me form my own personal philosophy and some of my ideas uh, just about the world and how I kind of address things. So um, you can say what you want about Rand's Uh, her prose, but the the theory behind her prose was um, pretty solid, even if the the fictional writing got a bit torturous from from time to time. So this is Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged. This is Francisco's Money Speech. And uh, a little bit of background on this particular passage is, um, so Francisco's at a party. And he gets passed during the party by somebody who doesn't have the same views on the world as he does, who basically says under his breath, money is the root of all evil. And this speech is um, Francisco's retort to that particular individual after he, he throws this veiled insult under his breath. <clears throat> so, so you think that money is the root of all evil? Have you asked yourself what is the root of money money is a tool of exchange which can't exist unless there are goods produced and men able to produce them money is the material shape of the principle that men who wish to deal with one another must deal by trade and give value for value money is not the tool of the moochers who claim your product by tears or of the looters who will take it from you by force Money is made possible only by men who produce. Is this what you consider evil? When you accept money in payment for your effort, you do so only on the conviction that you will exchange it for the product of the effort of others. It is not the moocher or the looter who give value to money. Not an ocean of tears, not all the guns in the world, can transform those pieces of paper in your wallet into the bread you will need to survive tomorrow those pieces of paper which should have been gold are a token of honor your claim upon the energy of the men who produce your wallet is your statement of hope that somewhere in the world around you there are men who will not default on that moral principle which is the root of money is this what you consider evil Have you ever looked for the root of production? Take a look at an electric generator and dare tell yourself that it was created by the muscular effort of unthinking brutes. Try to sow a seed of wheat without the knowledge left to you by men who had to discover it for the first time. Try to obtain your food by means of nothing but physical motions, and you'll learn that man's mind is the root of all the goods produced, and of all the wealth that has ever existed on earth. But you say that money is made by the strong at the expense of the weak? What strength do you mean? It is not the strength of guns or muscles. Wealth is the product of man's capacity to think. Then is money made by the man who invents a motor at the expense of those who did not invent it? Is money made by the intelligent at the expense of the fool's? by the able at the expense of the incompetent, by the ambitious at the expense of the lazy. Money is made before it can be looted or mooched, made by the effort of every honest man, each to the extent of his ability. An honest man is one who knows that he can't consume more than he has produced. To trade by means of money is the code of men of goodwill. Money rests on the axiom that every man is the owner of his mind and his effort. Money allows no power to prescribe the value of your effort except the voluntary choice of the man who is willing to trade you his effort in return. Money permits you to obtain for your goods and your labor that which they are worth to the men who buy them but no more. Money permits no deals except those to mutually benefit by the unforced judgment of the traders. Money demands of you the recognition that men must work for their own benefit, not for their own injury, for their gain, not their loss. The recognition that they are not beasts of burden, born to carry the weight of your misery, that you must offer them values, not wounds. That the common bond among men is not the exchange of suffering, but the exchange of goods. Money demands that you sell, not your weakness to men's stupidity, but your talent to their reason. It demands that you buy, not the shoddiest they offer, but the best that your money can find. And when men live by trade, with reason, not force... As their final arbiter it is the best product that wins the best performance the man of best judgment and highest ability and the degree of a man's productiveness is the degree of his reward this is the code of existence whose tool and symbol is money is this what you consider evil but money is only a tool it will take you wherever you wish But it will not replace you as the driver it will give you the means for satisfaction of your desires but it will not provide you with desires money is the scourge of men who attempt to reverse the law of causality the men who seek to replace the mind by seizing the product of the mind money will not purchase happiness for the man who has no concept of what he wants Money will not give him a code of values if he has evaded the knowledge of what to value and it will not provide him with a purpose if he has evaded the choice of what to seek. Money will not buy intelligence for the fool nor admiration for the coward nor respect for the incompetent. The man who attempts to purchase the brains of his superiors to serve him with his money replacing his judgment ends up by becoming the victim of his inferiors the men of intelligence desert him but the cheats and the frauds come flocking to him drawn by a law which he has not discovered that no man may be smaller than his money is this the reason why you call it evil only the man who does not need it is fit to inherit wealth the man who would make His own fortune, no matter where he started. If an heir is equal to his money, it serves him. If not, it destroys him. But you look on, and you cried that money corrupted him. Did it? Or did he corrupt his money? Do not envy a worthless heir. His wealth is not yours, and you would have done no better with it. Do not think that it should have been distributed among you. Loading the world with filthy parasites instead of one. Would not bring back the dead virtue which was the fortune? Money is a living power that dies without its root. Money will not serve the mind that cannot match it. Is this the reason why you call it evil? Money is your means of survival. The verdict you pronounce upon the source of your livelihood is the verdict you pronounce upon your life. If the source is corrupt, you have damned your own existence. Did you get your money by fraud? By pandering to men's vices or men's stupidities? By catering to fools? In hope of getting more than your ability deserves? By lowering your standards? By doing work you despise for purchasers you scorn? If so, then your money will not give you a moment's or a penny's worth of joy. Then all the things you buy will become... Not a tribute to you, but a reproach. Not an achievement, but a reminder of shame. Then you'll scream that money is evil. Evil because it would not pitch hit for your self-respect. Evil because it would not let you enjoy your depravity. Is this the root of your hatred of money? Money will always remain in an effect and refuse to replace you as the cause. Money... Is the product of virtue but it will not give you virtue and it will not redeem your vices money will not give you the unearned neither in matter nor in spirit is this the root of your hatred of money or did you say it's the love of money that's the root of all evil to love a thing is to know and to love its nature to love money is to know and to love the fact that money is the creation of the best power within you and your passkey to trade your effort for the effort of the best among men it's the person who would sell his soul for a nickel who is loudest in proclaiming his hatred of money and he has good reason to hate it the lovers of money are willing to work for it they know they are able to deserve it let me give you a tip on a clue to men's characters the man who damns money has obtained it dishonorably. The man who respects it has earned it. Run for your life from any man who tells you that money is evil. That sentence is the leper's bell of an approaching looter. So long as men live together on earth and need means to deal with one another, their only substitute, if they abandon money, is the muzzle of a gun. But money demands of you the highest virtues, if you wish to make it or keep it. Men who have no courage, pride, or self-esteem, men who have no moral sense of their right to their money and are not willing to defend it as they defend their life, men who apologize for being rich, will not remain rich for long. They are the natural bait for the swarms of looters that stay under rocks for centuries, but come crawling out at the first smell of a man who begs to be forgiven for the guilt of owning wealth. They will hasten to relieve him of the guilt, and of his life, as he deserves. When you will see the rise of men of the double standard, the men who live by force, yet count on those who live by trade to create the value of their looted money, the men who are hitchhikers of virtue. In a moral society, these are the criminals, and the statutes are written to protect you against them. But when a society establishes criminals by right and looters by law, men who use force to seize the wealth of disarmed victims, then money becomes its creator's avenger. Such looters believe it's safe to rob defenseless men once they've passed a law to disarm them. But their loot becomes the magnet for other looters, who get it from them as they got it. Then the race goes, not to the ablest of production, but to those most ruthless at brutality. When force is the standard, the murderer wins over the pickpocket, and then that society vanishes in a spread of ruins and slaughter. Do you wish to know whether that day is coming? Watch money. Money is the barometer of a society's virtue. When you see that trading is done, not by consent, but by compulsion. When you see that in order to produce, you need to obtain permission from men who produce nothing. When you see that money is flowing to those who deal, not in goods, but in favors. When you see that men get richer by graft and pull than by work, and your laws don't protect you against them, but protect them against you when you see corruption being rewarded and honesty becoming a self-sacrifice, you may know that your society is doomed. Money is so noble a medium that it does not compete with guns and it does not make terms with brutality. It will not permit a country to survive as half property, half loot. Whenever destroyers appear among men, they start by destroying money. For money is men's protection and the base of a moral existence. Destroyers seize gold and leave to its owners a pile of counterfeit paper. This kills all objective standards and delivers men into the arbitrary power of an arbitrary setter of values. Gold was an objective value, an equivalent of wealth produced. Paper is a mortgage on wealth that does not exist. Backed by a gun aimed at those who are expected to produce it. Paper is a check drawn by legal looters upon an account which is not theirs. Upon the virtue of victims, watch for the day when it bounces, marked account overdrawn. When you have made evil the means of survival, do not expect men to remain good. Do not expect them to stay moral and lose their lives for the purpose of becoming the fodder of the immoral. Do not ask them to produce when production is punished and looting rewarded. Do not ask, who is destroying the world? You are. You stand in the midst of the greatest achievements of the greatest productive civilization and you wonder why it is crumbling around you, while you're damning its lifeblood, money. You look upon money as the savages did before you, and you wonder why the jungle is creeping back to the edges of your cities. Throughout men's history money has always seized by looters of one brand or another whose names changed but whose methods remain the same to seize wealth by force and to keep the producers bound, demeaned, defamed, depraved of honor. That phrase about the evil of money which you mouth with such righteous recklessness, comes from a time when wealth was produced by the labor of slaves, slaves who repeated the motions once discovered by someone's mind and left unimproved for centuries. So long as production was ruled by force and wealth was obtained by conquest, there was little to conquer. Yet through all the centuries of stagnation and starvation, men exalted the looters, as aristocrats of the sword, as aristocrats of birth, as aristocrats of the bureau, and despised the producers as slaves, as traders, as shopkeepers, as industrialists. To the glory of mankind there was, for the first and only time in history, a country of money, and I have no higher, more reverent tribute to pay to America. For this means... A country of reason, justice, freedom, production, achievement. For the first time, man's mind and money were set free. And there were no fortunes by conquest, but only fortunes by work. And instead of swordsmen and slaves, there appeared the real maker of wealth, the greatest worker, the highest type of human being, the self-made man the american industrialist if you ask me to name the proudest distinction of americans i would choose because it contains all the others the fact that they were the people who created the phrase to make money no other language or nation had ever used these words before men had always thought of wealth as a static quantity to be seized begged inherited shared looted or obtained as a favor americans were the first to understand that wealth has to be created the words to make money hold the essence of human morality yet these were the words for which americans were denounced by the rotted cultures of the looter's continents now the looter's credo has brought you to regard your proudest achievements as a hallmark of shame your prosperity as guilt your greatest men, the industrialists, as blackguards, and your magnificent factories as the product and property of muscular labor, the labor of whip-driven slaves like the pyramids of Egypt, the rotter who simpers that he sees no difference between the power of the dollar and the power of the whip, ought to learn the difference on his own hide, as, I think, he will. Until and unless you discover that money is the root of all good, you ask for your own destruction. When money ceases to be the tool by which men deal with one another, then men become the tools of men. Blood, whips, and guns. Or dollars. Take your choice. There is no other. And your time is running out.
1: My name is Thomas Dillon. You may know me as the man who supposedly killed his own son to collect insurance money. The truth is my little boy, Walter, was abducted by a religious cult. They took him to a parallel world, to an America run by religious fanatics and plagued by disease. I know because I've been there and I found my son. It's a place of magic and malice and ignorance where faith-healing is medical care, and government enforcers dress like clansmen. Now, I know I sound crazy, like this is the plot of a dystopian dark fantasy novel that would appeal to fans of Neil Gaiman. And indeed, that's how I had to get my story out, by teaming up with writer Matthew Warner. He published my first-person account as a novel called Empire of the Goddess. Publishers Weekly called it quick paced and intriguing. Can you believe that? But he let me record the audiobook because only I can tell you my story, and it's going to blow your mind. Look for it on Amazon and at MatthewWarner.com. Empire of the Goddess.
2: All right so welcome to my part of rolling rocks radio this week because of uh unfortunate circumstances the guys we couldn't all get together so we decided to do something on our own uh scott come up with the idea that maybe we should read something a quote a passage a chapter in a book or whatever and discuss it me i mean i went through a lot thinking you know what could i talk about you know this time you know hard you know what would be good so I decided to uh read a letter actually two letters and talk about them because these two letters uh, they reinforce each other but the first one is simple but it's overwhelming in what it meant and right now people forget the things that were done to make this country great We forget some of our heroes we forget what men and women were willing to do what they sacrificed Uh, so this one I'm going to read this is written by Colonel William Travis February 24th 1836 command he was the commander of the garrison at the Alamo to the people of Texas and all Americans in the world fellow citizens and compatriots, I am besieged by a thousand or more of the Mexicans under Santa Ana. I have sustained a brutal bombardment and cannonade for 24 hours and I have not lost a man. The enemy has demanded a surrender at discretion, otherwise the garrison are to be put to the sword if the fort is taken. I have answered the demand with a cannon shot and our flag still waves proudly from the walls. I shall never surrender or retreat. Then I call on you in the name of liberty of patriotism and everything dear to the American character to come to our aid. With all dispatch, the enemy is receiving reinforcements daily and will no doubt increase to three or four thousand in four or five days. If this call is neglected, I am determined to sustain myself as long as possible and die like a soldier who never forgets what is due to his honor and that of his country. Victory or Death. William. Barrett Travis, Lieutenant Command Colonel, commanding. P.S. The Lord is on our side. When the enemy appeared in sight, we have not three bush bushels of corn. We have since found in deserted houses eighty or ninety bushels, and gotten to the walls twenty or thirty heads of beef. Signed, Travis. This is important to me. This is our history. I know there's arguments back and forth about Texas, and, and you always hear people, especially nowadays, talking about imperialism and Americans stealing land. The idea of Texas and the Republic of, Repu- Texas was going to be its own country. The men who fought at the Alamo and then fought later on to re- basically avenge the Alamo, a lot of those men fought with Santa Ana in uh, his rebellion to overthrow foreign leaders and occupiers of Mexico and the deal was if these men helped oust Mexico's enemies and occupiers then they would give the men land in Texas. After Mexico got its independence, the men a lot of these men started taking land grants in Texas. Uh, The problem was, is that Santa Ana changed his mind. And you can go back and forth on why some people believe, a lot of scholars believe, is because um, the new country of America, you know, this is in the 1820s, 1830s, isn't very old, and has recognized Texas, and has started up trade, and a lot of the new Americans are now moving to Texas as well. You know, and for that, Santa Ana wanted it gone. But that's not the reason I read the letter. I read the letter because this is you know, a fairly young man who, along with less than 200 others, were surrounded, had very limited supplies, had already been told that if you do not surrender now, we will kill you all. And he was awaiting aid from the American Army, but they were still quite a ways away. There's still argument whether or not we should even fight, whether we should send men there. I mean, there was a lot of uh, political back and forth. But here's Colonel Travis. He's got basically no real army. He's got a bunch of uh, farmers. He's got basically a ragtag militia. He does have his uh, other commander, who kind of helped, but he was sick and dying at the time. Was Jim Bowie, legendary fighter, you know, inventor of the, you know, giving credit for the inventor Bowie knife and all that. Uh, He also had Davy Crockett was there, you know, legendary frontiersman. Uh, among, and there were lots of other people. There were some Texas Rangers there. Um, but mostly it was just a handful of families. And he got these men to basically stand. And towards the end of the siege, they knew they were all going to die. Um, he gave them a chance to leave. And pretty much to the man, they decided to stay. Uh they did Santa Ana, He did allow the women, children, and non-combatants to leave before the final fight. Uh, he he was at least he knew there he was going to have to kill everybody in the fort. Uh, that already there was no way around it. He done made made that point. They either surrender or die. And Santa Ana was not gonna go back on his word. He couldn't look weak. So he did offer to allow the women to leave and non combatants and children. So they they left and then we all know what happened. The Santa Ana's army attacked on all four sides, you know, early in the morning and were able to breach and get in. And pretty much the men fought almost almost like little small pitched battles at different places in the fort along the walls in the courtyard and buildings but they were all put to death including uh, <laughs> Travis including Jim Bowie and Cooper and, as well as Davy Crockett uh But the whole point of this is the fact that every day you see on social media these young men and women complaining about how our country isn't important, how our country's never been great. Uh, you hear people talk about toxic masculinity, whatever that's supposed to be. Uh, you talk, you know, you see where people are telling each other that you shouldn't be a man and that, um. And all this, you know, you hear people talking about the feminization of the American male. This right here was a letter written by a young man who knew he was facing certain death. All he had to do not to die was surrender. But instead, he decided to stand his ground knowing the cost. Knowing the cost would be his life and the life of those around him. He did offer men to leave when they knew they weren't going to get any aid Uh, but again most of the men chose to stay because you don't want to be you know you don't want to leave your your friends you know so these men to the last fought and died and it's it's a pretty intense thing to think about that if it wasn't for people like him and wasn't for people you know, all through all our history. Um, we may, we would never had a country. You know, these these guys, you know, men and women, I mean, we fought the English not that long before. 50 years before that, we were fighting the English for independence. And not even 15 years or so before the Battle of Alamo, we fought the English again in the War of 1812. So, if it wasn't for the bravery of, of men, like Travis, we wouldn't have a country to say anything about. And you wouldn't have the freedom to talk about how ungrateful you are about our country. Now, the other letter I want to read, this one is different. Uh, it's from the other side. Of the attack but I thought it was pretty interesting because this is a young Mexican soldier who was actually involved in the fight he was involved in the final push and when they broke in Uh, the attack was made in four columns led by general uh, general Morales Duque de Estrada and Romero I marched under the immediate command Of General Koss, and tell you what I saw after a long wait we took our places at three o'clock on the south side a distance of 300 feet from the fort of the enemy here we remained flat on our stomachs until 530 whoo it was cold when the signal to March was given by the president from the battery between the north and east immediately general Koss cried forward and placing himself himself at the head of the attack we ran to the assault carrying scaling ladders picks and spikes Although the distance was short, the fire from the enemy's cannon was a fearful. We fell back, more than forty men fell around me in a few moments. One can but admire the stubborn resistance of our enemy, and the constant bravery of all our troops. It seemed every cannonball or pistol shot of the enemy embedded itself in the breast of our men, who without stopping cried, Long live the Mexican Republic, long live Santa Ana. I can tell you the whole scene was one of extreme terror. After some three quarters of an hour of the most horrible fire there followed the most awful attack with hand arms poor things no longer do they live all of them died and even now i am watching them burn the freest from from the purification 257 corpses without counting those who fell in the previous 13 days or those who have vainly sought safety in flight the leader named travis dad like a brave man with his rifle in his hand at the back of a cannon. But that perverse and haughty James Bowie died like a woman in bed, almost hidden by the covers. Our loss was terrible on both officers and men. That was the end of the letter. Uh, said so this was written to his brothers uh, back home as a young soldier who fought. And you listen to him talk about how much respect he had for the other side. Even as men were dying, he was talking about how brave their resistance was. And how it bothered him to know they all died. And it it was horrible. And even though he lost his friends, it was, you know, a horrible thing to watch what they had to do. And, uh, you know, him giving Travis, you know, the idea of a hero. And then talking in a little bit of trash about James Bowie. The issue with James Bowie at the time, uh, there's still debate. Some people believe he had tuberculosis and he was dying. He was towards the end. He was dying. They had him uh, drugged up or he was drunk most of the time because he was in so much pain. The argument now is they're not sure if he had TB or if he had some sort of form, form of cancer and he was dying. He was not very lucid. He was uh, had a lot of problems. A lot of times he didn't even know where he was. Uh, and he didn't die hiding, he was basically in the hospital, he was in the ward. Uh, and when they stormed in, uh, different accounts say he actually had pistols and he fired both, and then they bayoneted him in, in the bed, because he was too weak to stand. But needless to say, you can see the respect that this young Mexican soldier had for the men they were, they were fighting, and that he was there to kill. And also, to thus the reason I read that is to show you that he had respect for the all the other side, and that is something we don't have anymore. If someone has a different of opinion, you hate them, whether wrong or right, you just hate them. You come up with names, call them things. This these gentlemen were shooting each other and killing each other, and still were respectful. This young man who watched people die around him was still respectful of the men he was shooting at and the men that were shooting at him. Maybe I'm going on a little tangent tonight. Sorry. But here in the last couple weeks, this has been a rough time. And I'm, I'm hoping for unity. I'm hoping the country can pull itself back together. <clears throat> but we got to stop name calling. We got to stop pointing fingers. And we need to start acting like Americans, acting acting like people who deserve what these men fought and died for. And with that, I'll call it a night. Uh we'll blend this together. Scott will and uh, you'll have something from Scott himself and something from Cody. Uh, I'm going to enjoy a glass of black heart rum tonight since we're not with the guys, we're not drinking whiskey. drink a a little bit of rum and until we do another one i wish you the best good night
3: what is going on rolling rocks fam it is mr cody carter coming at you on a sipping separately episode with my rolling rocks brothers mr scott barker Mr. Jerry Armantrout and yours truly, Mr. Cody Carter. It is Wednesday, it is hump day, and it is also subsequently Workout Wednesday. Uh, me and the missus got it in this afternoon. Chelsea Fisher Carter, shameless plug. Uh, we went in, we hammered out some kettlebell action, broke a sweat, and got after it as a couple holding each other accountable. It was fantastic. Uh, We got a little behind on scheduling, as I'm sure you've already heard from from my brothers in arms, Uh, but we just could not go without providing content. We need this outlet. It does us as much good to put things out into the universe as we hope it benefits you from hearing it. Uh, Without further ado, going to go ahead and touch on what I am sipping separately this evening, uh, I went out on a limb and I grabbed the screwball peanut butter whiskey. It says, to the misfits, black sheep, and screwballs. And I would say that all three of us can be characterized by... One, two, if not all three of those characteristics. Uh, the Screwball Peanut Butter Whiskey got the Consumer's Choice Award in 2020, the, the SIP Award. And then they say, we didn't just create peanut butter whiskey, we perfected it. Uh, it's something very interesting when I was talking with my consultant at my local uh, ABC store here in Virginia. They said that it, is, it has the hourglass effect on people. I didn't quite understand what that meant, so I asked. And they said it's all or nothing. People are either completely on one side or the other. Uh, they either love it or they hate it. What they did say is there was a common thread between those who loved it and those who hated it was that people who loved it love peanut butter. They say if you like peanut butter, you should love this whiskey. If you do not like peanut butter, then you are absolutely going to hate it. I love peanut butter. I eat a peanut butter and jelly sandwich Almost every day, not necessarily every day, maybe it's the inner child in me. I love a peanut butter and jelly sandwich with a small bag of chips. That's one of my weaknesses, and a glass of regular milk or chocolate milk. Uh, There's just something about that that soothes the soul. So I have not cracked this bottle open. I was waiting for this moment. So it is a twist top, it doesn't have a cork. And when I pointed that out to the ABC employee, because that was almost a hang up for me, he said, and I quote, don't be a snob. So I don't think that I've ever spent enough money on a bottle of whiskey or have uh, been in this lane long enough to consider myself a whiskey snob. So normally we do a cork pop and I'm going to do a twist top. So I don't know if you can hear this, but oh, that's a nice little seal breaker. You definitely know that it's sealed up. Oh, it definitely smells like peanut butter. Oh, I'm really enjoying it. If this thing tastes half as good as it smells. I'm going to be all about this. This might be dangerous. I have not eaten post-workout yet, so I probably should not be partaking in whiskey just yet. Oh, it's got a good color. Oh, it's got nice fingers on the glass. Okay. Bottoms up. Here we go. Here we go. Oh, that's good. (laughs) Yep, they were right. If you love peanut butter, you will absolutely love this. I am very excited about this. This is going to get me in a world of trouble and I am liable to be in a lot of pain tomorrow. Uh, But that's okay because I don't work tomorrow. I took the day off. Uh, My wife and I are getting matching tattoos. We have talked about doing this for quite a while and we decided to go for it. So she is going to it's it's a lion lioness theme it's very fitting uh for our family so the the theme is she will get the lioness i will get the lion but we will each only get half of the face so she will get one half of the lioness. I will get one half of the lion. They will face each other. We're going to get them on our forearms. Mine will face hers. Hers will face mine, and it will make one complete face. Uh, It's very fitting for our family because every morning when I drop my girls off at school, I ask them, who are you? They will tell me their name. Who am I? They say your dad, and I'll ask them You know, who loves you? And they will, of course, say, me. I will ask them, is there anything that they can do that will ever change that? They say, no. I ask them, is there anything anyone else can do that will ever change that? They say, no. And I asked them, I said, what are Carters? Uh, That's our last name, Carter, obviously. And they say, Carters are lions. And I will ask them, do you know why the lion is the king of the jungle? They know the answer to that now. At first, they did not. And I uh, would say, well, he's not, the lion is not the biggest animal. What's the biggest? And they would throw out a few, eventually landing on the elephant. The elephant is the biggest and strongest. They say, is, is the lion the fastest? And we all know that's not the case because the cheetah is the fastest. And so I would ask them, okay, if he's not the biggest and he's not the strongest and he's probably not the smartest, uh, why is he king of the jungle? And eventually they have learned it is because he knows he is. The lion is the king of the jungle because he knows it. So now they understand that carters are lions and that they know they're in charge They are in charge in their own mind. They are in charge of their own life. They create the environment around them that they want. They associate with the people that they want to associate with. And they create things and they make things happen because they know they are lions and they know that they can because they are mentally strong. Uh, So that's my my little spiel about why we're getting tattoos, matching tattoos. We're getting tattoos together because we love each other and we've talked about doing it for years. Uh, We thought it was a cool theme. It fits our family theme. So that's my little spiel about why we're getting tattoos. Uh, And that also segues into... Uh, the theme of this evening that uh, Brother Scott assigned to us and he asked us to pick a passage out of a book that we have read or are reading that really resonates with us. So I chose a passage from uh, it's a book called The Power to Transform. A quick sip timeout. Oh, that's so good. the consistency of that it it's it's I don't know, it's almost got a slight thickness. To it it it's i I don't know how to describe this I don't have the the vocabulary to describe this. All I can say is it gets my amateur whiskey endorsement uh, okay I digress so the the book I chose is the Power to Transform by Chris Meyer with John Brant, and this book uh it's about passion, power, and purpose in your daily life and it touches on lots of different things how language shapes reality learning in a new world uh the history of the human potential project which is what this book is based on cultivating awareness it, it's it's to encourage a bit of an awakening of how much control uh we have in our own life so i think so many people feel like life just happens to them And they are merely responding to what happens. And sure, there are instances where that happens. You know, you get T-boned by a car, okay? Yeah, that happened. Uh, A loved one dies. Uh, You know, there are things that are constantly happening and you have to respond to them. But what most people don't understand is so many of the things that happen to them are a response to what they have done, the things they have put out into the world, the choices that they have made. And that is exactly what I'm going to discuss. I'm going to take a segment out of this book. Uh, It's in the chapter, chapter seven, I believe. Uh, Let me, let me confirm. Yep, chapter seven, it's, it's the chapter of choice. It's called Claiming Your Birthright. And, and I'm going to just go ahead and dig right into one of my favorite uh, passages of this book. And it says, "...the most fundamentally powerful declaration an individual can make is also the most basic. I always have a choice. This simple linguistic move shapes the context in which your entire life occurs, and it is the key to the process of enhancing personal power, performance, dignity, and grace, the building blocks of your transformation." I always have a choice. If you look at your life from that declarative space, then you will see that everything that you are, everything that you do, everything that you have is the direct and sole result of the countless choices you have made during the course of your life. You choose your attitudes, opinions, beliefs, behavior, point of view, and responses to life. You choose your career path and your particular job. You choose all of your relationships and the condition of your relationships. Through your choices regarding eating, drinking, smoking, and exercise, you have chosen the state of your health, your bodily shape and appearance, and to a significant degree, the length of your life. Ultimately, your entire life is a result of the choices you have made. I realize that these are bold statements. That's the point. You aren't going to shape the new you by being timid. Already, just one page into this chapter, your mind has no doubt erupted with all sorts of reasons for why you don't have a choice, exceptions to the statement, and ways that you are exempt from it. You are also likely awash in a flood of whatabouts and what-ifs, which your mind wants to hide behind rather than own this powerful declaration. This reaction is only natural. I am inviting you to step into a new realm. If you live your life from the declaration, I always have a choice, then you will find yourself living in a world that is very different from the one most of humanity inhabits. Your mind naturally rebels at this notion. It would much rather avoid the discipline required to consistently be aware of all the potential choices to be made, let alone be accountable for those choices you do make. If left to your conditioned responses, then you will quickly find yourself once again moving back into the herd and wondering why you ever bought this book in the first place. By now, I trust you know that comfort is not our goal. In fact, we are consciously choosing to move in the opposite direction. I am pushing you to break free of your habitual patterns of seeing and being in the world. That just really, really resonated me with me when I read it. Uh, I I've, I believe in the power of choice. And if you're listening to this, you're probably wondering, well, what, a, what about the whatabouts? The what ifs? The, well, I didn't choose to get T-boned by that car. I didn't choose to have my wife cheat on me. I didn't choose to get fired from my job. You're correct in a sense that you did not make that specific choice. But undoubtedly, there are choices that you made along the way that put you in the situation where some of those choices were made for you. And while you may not have said, I choose to get fired, you chose to show up late. You chose to not give it your all to meet your quota numbers. You chose to ignore your boss's emails. You chose not to dress accordingly. You chose not to put your best foot forward. Those are all conscious choices that you make day in and day out. You may not have chose to be downsized by your company, but you chose to enter a field where that was potentially a possibility. You may not have consciously known that when you chose that job, but that was a field you chose to enter into and you have to choose how you handle the reaction of those decisions. For example, Uh, One that's gotten brought up to me in these types of conversations is some of the planes that were crashed during 9-11 and the people who unfortunately lost their lives. But there is a prime example because there were people on one of those planes that chose to take a stand. They chose to fight and fight back knowing that there was probably not a lot that they could do. But they chose, instead of sitting in their seat and going out like that, they chose to get up and fight with their final breath. Now, for those who didn't make that choice, I think no less of you. I'd like to think that I would respond in a certain way given the situation, but I've never been in that situation. I, I cannot say definitively how I would respond. The male bravado in me wants to say that, no, I'd go down fighting. And I do believe that about myself. I feel like I would rather rather die fighting for my life and the life of those around me than die doing nothing. People didn't choose for those planes to be hijacked, but even until the very last minute, they had a choice. They had the ability to choose how they died do I die fighting or do I die letting this plane hit the ground and sitting here doing nothing? Again, no judgment, but the difference, what people need to understand is that you may think you don't have a choice. The difference is, is you have a choice. You just might not like the choices currently available to you. But on the other side of that, there's a saying that I heard once that really stuck with me. The moment At which you choose to act directly impacts the amount of choices available to you. And I'll say that again, the moment in which you choose to act directly impacts the amount of choices available to you. So you see people get stuck in this paralysis by analysis where they don't know what to do, they don't know what to do, they don't make a choice, they don't make a choice, and time goes by and time goes by, and the longer the time goes, the fewer and fewer choices they now have available to them. For example, when somebody gets a flat tire, well, did that flat did that tire go flat because they hit a nail? Or was it because they rode it till it was flat and now the wires are exposed. The tire goes flat while they're driving. And now they're hooping and hollering because oh, I didn't choose for this to happen. I'm going to be late to work. You know, the boss says, Well, why are you late? Well, I got a flat tire. There was nothing I could do about it. Well, there was something you could do about it. You could have done something sooner, but you chose not to. So now what has happened to you is a byproduct of the choices you either did or didn't make. And make no mistake by not making a choice. You are making a choice. You think, I I don't know what to do. I'm not going to make a decision right now. You're making a decision to not choose. Once again, owning that you've made a choice and that you always have a choice. I, and I know that that's really hard for a lot of people because what happens is I'm choosing to ask you guys to hold on for a second while I take another sip of this delicious whiskey the reason that this concept is so difficult for so many people to comprehend or to accept i think most people probably understand it very quickly it's it's the it's the choice to accept it is it puts all it puts it all on you it puts it puts every single aspect of your life squarely on your shoulders and that is a big pill for a lot of people to swallow because it's easier to blame this this entity it's easier to blame god it's easier to blame your parents it's it's easier to blame the government the president it's easier to blame the system and and that's not to be confused there there are issues with our system so to speak there are issues with our government there are issues But that does not excuse you from your choices. That does not excuse you from your mistakes. You are an adult. You are grown. It is your responsibility to set and steadfast the course of your life. Nobody's going to do it for you. And if you've had people making choices for you your whole life, there's going to come a day where you're going to have to make some very difficult decisions. And you're not going to know what to do or how to do it because you've always had someone else doing it for you. Start small. Make a conscious decision on what you're going to eat for dinner. If that one's easy, make a conscious decision on what you want to watch that night. Watch a movie. Choose a show to start watching. Make a choice to pick up a book and start reading a few pages. Make the choice to, you know, drink water instead of soda. It doesn't have to be monumental decisions like, am I going to refinance my house? Am I going to quit my job? Uh, Momentum is a big thing. The more decisions you make, the more momentum you get. There was a quote, I forget who said it, but it said uh hard work is or qu- uh, luck is nothing but a product of hard work, and the harder I work, the more luck I seem to find. Well, the more decisions you start making, the easier it becomes to make sound decisive decisions. Uh, I think that that's one of the problems that we're currently seeing with our police force is that they're not really taught how to make sound, decisive decisions. They're taught to do it. They're, They're taught you need to be decisive. You need to make decisions. But I don't know that they're taught how to properly assess situations to make the most sound, decisive decisions that will best benefit the situation that they're in. Uh, But yes, making decisions, the more you make, the better you become at decision-making, the smoother things will start to become. Now, what you need to understand is that when you start taking this ownership, when you start acknowledging that you've always got a choice, it is going to be uncomfortable for a little while because it's almost like you you took the top off your head and the universe just rushed in and you start seeing the good, the desired consequences and undesired consequences of a lot of the choices you've started to make. And you're going to go through a little bit of an emotional roller coaster because all that... Blame game you were playing, where you were pointing it at everyone else, all that, ah, this is their fault, this is where I was born, where I went to school, where I didn't go to school, all that crap, you're going to start to realize it was just crap, and it's on you, and then you're going to start looking back at all the decisions you wish you could go back and do differently, and then you're going to get frustrated with yourself, because you can't. You You can't undo what's been done. You know, you tie a knot in a shoe, a pair of shoelaces. You might untie the knot, but they're still shoelaces. You know what I mean? Like, you can untie the knot, but you're still holding a a shoelace. It doesn't change what is. Uh, You just, just kind of, you went back and you tried to undo what was done, but you didn't change what is. Uh, So all you can do is start moving forward. Reflect on decisions you've made. Don't ignore mistakes made. Reflect on mistakes made. But reflect for the effort and for the sake of not repeating the same mistakes over and over and over again. The whole point is to learn, is to evolve. If you're listening to this, you're alive. Don't take that for granted. Think about all the people that had to come before you in order for you to be alive. You don't have to know them all. I certainly don't. But start looking at the the human history. Even if you don't know, just divide out the average lifespan and think about the amount of people that had to exist and adapt and learn and make choices and survive just for you to be here listening to this. If that doesn't send shivers down your spine, I don't, you know... To think about that, all those people lived and survived and passed on something to you just so you can be a screw-up? No, that's not your purpose. Your purpose is not to coast. Your purpose is not to take it easy and blame everybody else for the results of your life, what your life has turned into, what your life didn't turn into. That's on you. And it's on you to do something about it. Especially if you have people looking at you depending on you, counting on you to do something with your life, I look at my children and I see the way they look at me, and I just, I, can't, I can't fail. I don't have the option of failing. It's not in the cards for me. I don't have I don't have a rich uncle or grandfather or a trust fund or I don't have any of that. I have a family who loves me. I have kids who depend on me. I have a wife that is my partner and looks to me to lead our family. I can't mess that up. So I have to make choices every day. Some I like, some I don't, some I'm indifferent about. But I don't get to not make choices. I don't get to coast. I don't get to take it easy. I've never really had that option available to me. From the time I was little, I've had to make choices that were probably beyond what someone my age should have had to have made. But it's conditioned me to be who I am now. Don't be afraid. Don't don't be afraid of the shadow that your light can cast. Don't be afraid on casting a shadow over those that can't keep up because of the light that you have found. Sometimes the most significant choices you're going to make are going to be the most uncomfortable. They're not all easy. They're not supposed to be. If everything was easy, everybody would be doing it. You're probably in the situ- if let me rephrase this, if you don't like the situation that you're in, it's most likely Because you were making all the easy decisions. You were trying to make all the easy choices. That's a tough pill to swallow. I get that. It's hard to sit there and look in the mirror and say, everything I have or don't have is because of the choices I have made. Believe me, I've had to have that conversation with myself more than once. We've all got it in us. We're smart. We're human. Our brains are what set us apart from every other living creature, including some of our own on this planet. Don't take it for granted. You can't get it back. Nobody's gonna save you. Nobody's gonna give you what you lost. Nobody's gonna give you what you don't have. It's up to you. Be grateful for what you have. Be appreciative for what you have. Be happy with what you've done. But if you want a little more, that's okay too. And don't make the choice to allow anyone to talk you out of that. You can be more. You can be better. You can be different. And that's okay. Some of the best people I've ever known have been a little different. They haven't been like everybody else, and that's what drew me towards them. You know it when you see it. You know what different looks like. You can feel what different looks like. And interestingly enough, most people who are different, they know they're different, but they don't care because they are completely content with their different. They've made choices to separate themselves from other people. And they have learned and become aware of what comes along with that. So my final thoughts to you are make choices. Drink good whiskey. Be positive. Enjoy your life. Love the people around you and tell them. Don't assume that they know. Make a choice to tell somebody that you love that you love them with all your heart and soul. All right, y'all, this is all I got. One more sip of the peanut butter whiskey. Oh, my gosh. All right, Mr. Cody Carter, this bottle of Screwball peanut butter whiskey. We're
0: out. The music for tonight's episode was But I Am Shafts of Light by Mayth from their album Wailing Village.